Welcome to the Black Belt Business Podcast. My name is Matthew Brenner, and today we are with Rochelle Brenner, aka Little Rocky, and you're going to hear how she went from a journalist to eventually running a martial arts school, oh, and a Golden Gloves boxing champion. As my sister, you're going to hear lots of uh, funny and probably some embarrassing stories that I'm going to regret later. So Shelly, as I call you, thank you so much for coming on here. Uh, Mom made me come on here to help you find a girlfriend. Maybe your if your podcast is good. Well, you know what? I'll embarrass you first because when we're sitting here, you thought the microphone was too high, so you put a sweatshirt under your butt on the chair booster like you would shirt. a booster shirt, and I think that's kind of ridiculous. So we can definitely go both ways on this situation. Yes, I can. Thank you. <laughs> so let's – oh, my God. This, this, at this podcast, for anyone who's listening, is going to take probably a lot of editing to make it appropriate. Hopefully none of our students listen to this. All right. So well, let's get started. Um, let's talk about how your childhood was a little different than my childhood. What do you mean by that? Okay, let's just do like a quick question. Who do our parents like more, girls or boys? Boys. Okay, so where do I rank as far as favorites? Am I like, if I was a favorite, I'm already beneath all the boys, but then among the girls. Well, let's give people some background. So parents have nine kids, five girls, four boys. Is that? Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's correct. All right, so now what was your question? My question is, why does mom like you better than me? Besides like... I'm more charming and better looking and nicer to her. Okay. But remember that one mean thing you did that one time that she never forgot? Yes. Yet when you yelled at her on yes. the day of her favorite son's bar mitzvah? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was really bad. Yeah. So why are we bringing that up? Here's the issue. You made me watch Barney over and over and over again my whole middle school and high school years. and it's Before Netflix. I want you to be entertained. It was not entertaining. I had to change your diapers. I had to babysit you when my friends came over. And now I'm talking to you with the word ass right behind your head. <laughs> Is this like a dream come true? Like, all right, there's a video of an ass behind Matt's head. It's a little riz. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your boxing career as a Golden Glove champion. Because people, they see you now, they, they see you as a martial arts school developer, owner. I know you got a couple locations, a remote location as well out in Martha's Vineyard, which is you know very far from your headquarter location in Mount Airy outside of Philly. So or that's in Philly. Mount Airy is part of Philly. Yes. So in Philly. Mm-hmm. So tell us about your Golden Gloves boxing career. Because I think most people don't even know about that. So... I beg to differ. (laughs) Maybe everyone knows about it. Well, I'm sure lots of people have your poster on the wall. It's like Muhammad Ali and then, you know, Little Rocky, right, is your nickname. So tell us about how did you get into boxing when the rest of the family was all into, like, regular karate and martial arts? Well, I moved to Florida, and I'll just tell some good boxing stories. The very first time I walked into a boxing gym, I was a journalist, and I was there to do a news story. And while I was there, I was like, oh, this looks like a lot of fun. And I was like, oh, I did karate. I can hit this heavy bag. And the coach came over and went, you couldn't crack an egg with that punch. And I was like, okay, all right, well, how do I do it? And so then I just was like, well, I just want to be able to look like I can throw a good punch. I wanted to get a good workout. And I had tried a couple of karate schools, and none of them had actually fit my preference at the time for whatever reason. And the boxing gym, just like, it just did it for me. Like, I loved the environment. I liked the gritty nature of it. I like boxing people. And so um, the very first class that I took. What do you like about boxing people? Tell me what you mean by that. Boxing people are very emotional and authentic. Let me think of a good example. So 
boxing, I would walk into the boxing gym and my coach would be like, lift up your shirt. You gained five pounds. What have you been eating? And like, there's just nothing to it. It's like, yeah, okay. Or it's like, oh, you got arrested for, I didn't personally, but you got arrested for, you know, beating the crap out of someone, you know, some fight for pimping, whatever. Like, yeah, I did it. You know, they don't lie about it. Like, yeah, that's what I did. All right, moving on. Like, and they say, you know, boxing people cry. Like, they're so emotional. They wear their hearts on their sleeves. They're so into, like, expressing themselves, almost like writers. Yeah, I remember when I first went with you to the boxing gym, the trainer had me take my shirt off. And I was like, what? I was probably a young teen at yeah, the time. Very ugly. Yeah, very yeah. ugly. It was uh, not for the reason you think. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so he was like, "All right, take off your shirt." And he was like, "And obviously, I wasn't a teenager, so I mean, I was slim. I, you know, I wasn't like overweight or anything, but I definitely wasn't like muscular in any way. Not and by it, any stretch. Not by any stretch. And it was funny because, like, a, I didn't expect that, and b, it was kind of like you left your ego immediately at the door, you know? Because for me, I was doing. Martial arts, like I was doing karate, I was competing in tournaments. Yeah, I wasn't like super competitive or the best in the world or any sort of champion, but I was still stay on this topic. All the things that you weren't. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, it was cool because like it was just like okay, leave everything right here. Okay, okay, now let's get to work. And I remember when he had me do some drills. Do you know what I'm going to say? The meat hook. Yeah, he was like, okay, put your hands up, put on some gloves, put on my gloves. I'm I'm like excited because you talked up this coach a lot, but I'm also amazing. just nervous. And so he had me just like take my hands, put them up like this, and he just like starts throwing hooks from the side, like boom, boom, boom. And he didn't, He told me, he didn't say not to punch, but like I definitely would not have punched him because I wouldn't even have the confidence to do that. And he's just wrecking me side to side, duh, duh, duh. And I hear my brain just like rolling around in my head. And, and you don't have much of a brain, so yeah, even very that. small brain. Yeah. Lots of room to move around. Um, that was before we knew about CTE, and I was just getting smashed. And like that's how the lesson started. It was take off your shirt. Okay, cool. Put your hands up. All right, now I'm gonna smash you back and forth. Okay, now we can do some drills. And then we started doing footwork drills before anything else. So it was cool that that's how we started, like set the standard. So did you have a similar experience? When you yeah, first that was. I call that the meat hook. It was like the first thing that he teaches you. So the lesson there. This is Coach Bill Connors. He's a Hall of Fame boxing coach in Florida. Is that you have to keep your hands up, and then you have to like hold them hard against your face. If you don't, you're not going to be able to withstand that kind of beating, and you have to be willing to have impact against your head and be willing to keep moving, keep going. If you're not, you're not a boxer. You know, there's a experience where people hit a heavy bag and they think they're Mike Tyson and they feel like Mike Tyson. And I mean, for me personally, when I hit a heavy bag, I'm like, I'm going to kill somebody. I am good. And then when they get in the ring and they get hit, they're like, never mind. So really just getting hit, be willing, being willing to get hit is pretty much the skill set that is required in order to be able to be a boxer. And so before even getting hit hard or getting hit by a surprise or by a straight punch, he just is hitting your glove to make sure that you're strong enough to keep your hand up against your face and to sh prove the point that if you don't have it pressed up against it, then your hand's just going to hit you and it's going to be that much. You'll knock yourself That's out. That's exactly what was happening to me. There was like space and it kept going like this and smashing my itself. And then I think he told me, like, hey, keep your hands up, up on your face. And that's right. Yeah. So how come you don't think that, hey, do you think that happens anymore? Do you think that's like an old school thing? Like, oh, 100% or... that still happens. Okay. Because boxing, oh, you think yeah. instruction is still pretty much that way. Yeah. But I mean, I can tell you, like, I mean, I want to tell some interesting stories about boxing. So 
one of the things that I happen to think is true, but I don't know if there's as much science to back this up, is that, you know, they think headgear is like a form of protection, but all that really protects against is cuts. The impact on the brain is still the same. So there's actually some movements within the boxing community to get rid of headgear. So there's actually less use of headgear in amateur fights. And they believe that that may help reduce the number of head injuries, which sounds kind of goofy. But if you have a headgear on, you're more likely to get hit because you're a bigger target. And then as well, you're wearing something heavy on your head. So the impact is actually harder. And then also you're more likely to like accept hits to the head because it is cushioned. So there's been a bunch of boxers who said, I know that whatever is wrong with my brain happened in the gym when I was wearing headgear. So there has been some talk about that. And I know, I mean, personally, I know people who have experienced those kinds of brain injuries. So it is definitely part of the sport. And I think what reduces its longevity, but you know, every sport has its um, downsides. I will say one of my fights that was really fun was at the Miami Beach Convention Center, which Ali Liston also fought there. Another very well-known You're just like boxing Liston. competition. <laughs> Two peas in a pod. Yeah, so one of the, that fight, Right beforehand, the woman I was going to fight got a sweatshirt from the promoter. And I was like, oh, where do I get that? She's like, I don't know. They gave it to me. And I was like, oh, I'll fight you for it. And she was like, okay. And so we fought and I won. And then afterwards, she went and gave me her sweatshirt. That's cool nice. boxing people. <laughs> yeah. And like a full-on fight or like a play No, spar. a real fight. Like a, <laughs> I don't play spar. Should we? <laughs> I, I kind of do want to hit you sometimes. But I think boxing is just an amazing, amazing sport. And it's one of the things that kept the fire for my martial arts interest going when I wasn't in a martial arts environment for all of the years that I was living in Florida. Because you had a black belt before that, I think, right? So you earned your black belt, eventually moved to Florida, started a family there, and eventually came back to Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. So you did boxing when you were there. So do you think you had a different perspective from boxing or about boxing because you came from a martial arts background? Absolutely. It was a huge advantage for me because I already... My favorite thing in karate was always sparring. I loved sparring. And I remember I loved sparring guys who were bigger than me that I could hit harder. Not that it would hurt them, but, you know, because I was like a kid sparring and, you know, 20-year-old female against a, you know, full-grown man. And I loved the experience of excitement, like feeling like I could like maybe get in once in a while, like fighting until I was like so exhausted I couldn't breathe, like my mouthpiece, like just like falling out of my mouth. I, I mean... I'll say this about sparring and combat sports. Now, that's an area that mostly men compete in. It is really a man's world. I was one of very few women who competed in boxing, particularly at that time when I was fighting, which sounds like it wasn't that long ago. But in my in like the, it was like the mid-2000s. And at that time, it wasn't even an Olympic sport for women. It did go on to become one after that. And so... That environment is such a like male-dominated experience. But my personal experience, and I love to say this, is that when I'm boxing, I feel like so empowered as a woman. I don't feel like a disgusting dude hitting things. I feel like a really strong woman. It's a really interesting dynamic. And I wish that more women could feel that experience because men, by their nature, are already you know, bigger than women generally and stronger. Oh, I'm going to get in trouble for this. Yeah, you can say that. Keep going. It's a fact. I'll take getting canceled. Yeah, me too. I support Dave Chappelle. <laughs> oh my gosh! Now that you'll get canceled for if you support the biggest comedian. One of I the also biggest think Ellen is funny. Does that uh, help? Okay. okay, so you so you get hit all the time, and you like the feeling of it. I like the feeling of I can defend myself and feeling like I'm strong enough to keep going. I, I think women, young girls, are often taught like be nice. It's not 
considered a very feminine feature to go and hit someone. It is a very male type activity. But to be a woman and be like, yeah, if somebody hits me, I'm going to hit them back and know that if somebody tries to attack me or I'm in a situation where I have to defend myself, that I have the the courage to defend myself or for somebody else, not to start fights like I do when I'm driving my Tesla. Did you know I had a Tesla? <laughs> tell us more about your Tesla. No, don't tell us more about your Tesla. They can find out later. I f- So for me, nothing makes me feel more empowered and strong as a woman more so than boxing. And that's, I think, what I wanted to share out of that experience is that it matches such a powerful, I think, need to feel like you're your own, like, you know, you can support yourself. You're powerful enough. You're not a guy. You're not belligerent, but you're able to defend yourself. And that is actually the thing that I bring into teaching girls now is I'm like in the karate school, in the karate mm-hmm. school is I want you to be able to punch someone if you have to, or I want you to be, and I mean, the example that I always give is when you're in college and someone invites you up to their dorm room and you don't want to go, I want you to be able to stand up and be like, I'm not going. And them to know like, oh, she is serious. This isn't a situation that I can take advantage of. So that is, I think, in the back of my mind all the time of what I'm aiming for here. I'm not aiming for these girls to go fighting people. I'm aiming for them to be like, okay, if somebody attacks me, I can take it and I can keep going and get out of there. And that's a really, really good, powerful feeling. How do you teach that to kids that are, let's say, 8 to 10 or 12 years old? How do you how do you do that exactly? Oh, that's a great question. So the biggest thing is it starts with confidence. That's like almost a cliche to say it. So I'm going to try to stick away from the cliches and I'll give more specific examples. For an example is I'll, I'll make them hit as hard as they can for 30 seconds and add a little bit of a t- intensity to it. Like, keep going, keep going, keep going, kind of in- – gradually increasing the intensity at them, telling them straight. Like hit a bag, you mean? Like hitting a wave a bag. master? Okay. Yep, like a wave master. And hitting it until they literally can't do it anymore. That they literally physically, and I say, oh, you ran out of energy? You have to have more than that. You have to get more than that. Like suck it up, get something out from inside of you, and hit it again. And then it's like, okay, we're done. Wait, I'm just kidding. Hit it again. At black belt test, which that is within the range of people who are testing for black belt, I do require them to like after everything is over, go and do every physical challenge again to show that like even when you're at the point of failure, you know, they do push ups till they fail, that they have to go back and do another one to show that like you can always go a little bit more. And then I tell them that if somebody makes you feel uncomfortable, this is a, a probably a big message, that you have a right and a responsibility and to make them feel uncomfortable. You don't have to make them, you don't have to coddle someone. If someone makes an inappropriate comment to you, make them feel bad right back. There's nothing that someone should be able to do to you that makes you feel less of yourself. And I think that that's a very common scenario that happens, uh, particularly for women. And I think that the more that we teach them young, that they don't have to just be nice and just go along with it and then it goes too far, they can do what they want to do or need to do to protect themselves. And none of it, I mean, I can tell you, the, I mean, the girls I teach, none of them are like fight, very rare, they like aggressive kind of fighter type girls. These are girls who I'm like, say asa, scream, and they're like, So that's why I say that this part of the teaching is so important. It's so huge because I can teach them kicks and punches all day, but the hardest thing is teaching them how to actually use their voice to protect their integrity, their self-esteem, and their confidence and the people around them. 
like somebody makes fun of them, like they need to be able to be like, okay, I, what you say doesn't mean anything to me. I do often say that if somebody bullies, there's bullying going on, and that happens all the time on, on all different levels. I do always say uh, we can't stop it. That happens no matter what, but we can do do things to prevent the damage from it. Meaning, I can't stop the bully from doing their thing. I can't stop the people who are Teacher's trying. Teachers not to, always going to be in the room, right? Right. Or a parent. Right. And even there's always going to be people who don't like you, who make you feel bad, who are stronger than you. And you are going to fail in life. But for them to not take that as like the last word on themselves, a lot of people early in age get bullied or get treated a certain way. And bully is like such a loaded term, but get treated a certain way that it diminishes who they think of themselves. And my goal is that that keeps happening to them, but it doesn't change how they're able to then proceed with their life. Too often it happens and they carry it with them for their whole lives. But sometimes that can almost, and this is like something I hear so often, and I'm always curious about. Like sometimes, shut up, you're ugly. <laughs> Nobody likes you. You're helping me a lot, giving me lots of power. So a lot of times, those bullying situations, or when someone makes you feel bad, you kind of carry it as a chip on your shoulder, and it's also what can motivate people for a really long time, yep. right? Like there's so many successful people that talk about they grew up very poor, had no money, or like, you know, they got picked on all the time. That's why they learned mixed martial arts. So that's why they wanted to become really good at a skill set like piano. So I guess, I don't know if, if you know the answer to this question or maybe just your thoughts on it. Like how do you, how do you deal with, how do you deal with that? Like giving them the opportunity to grow and deflect any damaging words, but also be motivated and ambitious in the way that people do who do have that chip on their shoulder if something happened to them. Yeah, I think it it goes down that same train. It's like you're going to get on the train that's going in the direction of I'm working for my growth, I'm working for being really good at something. And that chip on the shoulder can happen no matter what your experiences are. Like you can take, like somebody can take a bad experience and it like crushes them and somebody can take a bad experience and it elevates them. And it is really hard to figure out like why one train went one way and one train went the other way. My goal is simply to say, there's a train going that way, get on it. That's it. I can't stop that the, all those bad things are definitely going to happen. All I can do is say, hey, there's a good train. And, you know, the example I give, this is a couple of things. You know, people often say, what I think is one of the biggest lies that people say about children, and I, you can bring any child development expert in here, and I just will be very angry at them. Children are not resilient. They're not. It's a false premise. It's not true. They're not resilient. The things that happen to them hurt, and it stays with them forever just as much as it does for adults. And I think a lot of- emotionally resilient. Yes. You know, when their whole lives got disrupted from the pandemic and everybody said they're resilient, nope, this is going to affect them for a really long time. They're really going to struggle. And we obviously see that now with the mental health crisis in schools and through, I mean, really at levels that we've never seen before. When children experience trauma in their lives, I think the worst thing we can say is they're resilient, they'll be fine. I actually think it diminishes who they are as a person and takes away their ability to feel big emotions because I think they do feel it and they're being told, eh, you'll be okay, and we're looking at them that way. But if those same things happen to us as adults, we have a hard time coping with it. And yet we're not being told, oh, you're resilient. You'll get through it. And I say that because it's also kind of comical to even say it because when people deal with things as a kid, you know it follows you for life. That's what the whole world of therapy 
is about is talking about all those things you experienced and how one thing led to another. So I think the worst thing you can do is say, oh, you're resilient. That train's going that way no matter what. No, it's not. Like, no matter what happens, there's always another train going in the direction that sucks, in a bad direction. And so the more that we can acknowledge that, like, there's real emotional distress and trauma and difficult reactions for children, I think, the better off we are telling them, I know you experienced that bad thing, but you can also get on this good train. You can get on that train and just get to the next stop. And that's kind of what we do in karate is we give them a ticket to that train to the next stop and then a ticket to the next stop. And sometimes they might get off the train and bad things happen and, you know, just life happens. And then, but there's always the chance to get back on the train and keep going in that path. So that's what I kind of hope for. So that, let's just say there's a student who has I don't want to use generic terms for trauma, but like, let's say, you know, a parent died, you know, when they're young, that's, there's no resiliency for that. Everybody knows that that's a trauma that stays with you yeah, forever. Yeah, life changing. Yeah. And so they have a rough teen years and but that's still staying with them. You at least from one, let's say from their 10th grade year for six months, you gave them a ticket to a train, they got to the next stop and there weren't as many bad things happening in that man, you did a good job. That to me is like, all right, you did something great for that person. And at least they have something where they know that train is there and they can get back on it and be like, okay, there's something to go with. And it happens, I think, to a lot of people who are born into light lives that are just, the odds are stacked against them. A lot of times there's like one person in their life who showed them there's a train going in another direction that they can get on. Now, there's no telling why one person gets on it and the other hundred people don't. You know, there's, you know, for whatever reason, that one person. So I just want as many people as possible to know that that train is always going to be there and heading in the direction. Yeah. And you like that? Yeah, that's great. So and good. The thing, so good. And the thing that I remember when you said that is like the stories of people who are resilient are the ones that stick out, the ones we hear about, the ones where something happened where they were bullied in a school or they had trauma of a parent die and they're just, you know, meandering along life and take maybe take the wrong train. Like you don't hear about those. You want to hear about the great ones right? The ones that overcome it, the ones that use the chip on their shoulder. So I think that's like a, a good reminder of like, yeah, not everyone ends up on the good side of it or not everyone takes a good train. Yeah. And I would also say that th those stories that you hear about, I would say that on the same token, there's people living very unheralded lives. So someone who maybe got into a little trouble with the law, maybe had a couple of, you know, had some like kind of dead end type jobs, didn't do fantastic, but they know that they can get on a train save their money, get into an apartment, you know what I'm saying? Like, and just, and just be stable with their life instead of making bad decision after bad decision and staying on that train. They've learned enough or they've seen enough of someone to say, I don't want that. I don't want to make decisions that put me on a worse path in life. So even when they make that hard turn off or that's the direction they were headed from the moment they were born, there's always somebody along that ride that can get them a little help along the way to help with those. And I think there will still be issues on the on the train. By the way, I don't like trains in general. It sounds so, like you love trains. I actually hate trains. I won't get on one. The reason why is because once I got on a train that got stuck in the woods in Georgia, it was a train from Florida to, it was the auto train. It goes from uh, somewhere in Florida to somewhere up around the DC area. And it got stuck in the woods for 16 hours oh my God. because somebody put something on the tracks and uh, they arrested those people. It was like young adults and the train almost derailed. Oh my God. That was really scary. My train in today to get here, someone fell on the tracks. 
and I had to get out, and there was this whole giant emergency thing. I didn't see any of it. I just heard it. They just said it, and I had to like take it over here. This whole thing was crazy. Very scary. So what a great metaphor for Terrible like trains. sometimes you get stuck for 16 hours in the woods, and sometimes you have to get off the train because somebody else fell on the tracks. <laughs> and then you'd say, okay, let's just make it to the next stop, and yeah. we'll – Keep on Just going. Take an Uber. That's what I did. Exactly. So how do you teach these skill sets? Like, I understand how you teach it to your martial arts students, uh-huh. but you have a young daughter. Yes. So how do you think you do that with her? She's uh, 12? 13. 13 now. 13 now. Okay, cool. So like, how do you teach it to a young teen? Okay, I, I will say this. This is going to sound so hokey. Karate has helped my kids dramatically. Your kids didn't train in karate most of their not most of their life. Like it's like more recent because you moved from Florida to Philadelphia, joined the karate family with us, opened up your school, and then they started really training. They weren't really training in Florida. Correct. They did do some boxing though. Yeah. But they were too young to get hit in the head at the time. What I so I'll tell you about how boxing and my life and my kids kind of led me into karate. It's a very quick, easy. I've told the story before. It's kind of the backstory that it's like yada yada yada. My kids, when I was working in Florida, were I was not spending the kind of time with them that I wanted to. And I remember my daughter. This is when you were boxing or as a journalist? I was a journalist, crime reporter. And then I had other jobs after that that were in that same profession, but not being a writer. So I was doing like public relations, marketing, worked for a very large church. I did so a bunch of different. Big sugar. I did some promotional stuff for some different big, big, big companies. Yeah. Yeah. Baseball teams, really high, not that none of the fun stuff. So I did stuff for like the couple of baseball teams in Florida, but it wasn't like promoting the game. It was getting the finances or the organization to open up a stadium. So which you need a lot of government organizational like stuff to almost. come together. Yes. So I did I actually did work for a lobbyist. So I didn't do that kind of in the weeds lobbying, but I, I worked in that arena. So and I dealt with reporters at that time. So I was on the other side of it. Same industry, just different role. By the last job I had in Florida, I was very far from where my initial goals were. So my initial goal was to be Barbara Walters, may she rest in peace. And when why Barbara Walters? Like, what, what about oh, her? Oh, what about her? You know, she was such a trailblazer as a woman in the industry, and I loved how she asked people good questions. And I think that I always loved interviewing people. I loved talking to people and getting really good answers out of them. And obviously, I should be doing the interviewing in this podcast. <laughs> and you can I'm ask gonna, me whatever you I, want. I'm going to get to a few questions. Good. But what I, Barbara Walters, was, I mean, it's so corny to say. She's my idol. I'll tell you this great story that one time I thought she was doing like a special event at a library and I got like all dressed up and I was so excited. I practiced my question for her and like I couldn't wait. And I showed up at the library. This is one of the most embarrassing things that ever happened to me. And I went to the front desk. I was like, hi, I'm here for the Barbara Walters event. And they were like, oh yeah, it's back there. And the moment she said it, it hit me. Like it was in that moment. It never occurred to me until that second. Oh my God, she's not really here. It was like a simulcast of an event she was doing. (laughs) And I went in there feeling like I'm going to get to ask her a question. And it was just watching a video of Barbara Walters. I felt so (laughs) sick with like 12 other old people. It was so, (laughs) it was so embarrassing. So let's go back to how you teach your daughter. Yeah, so, so she's, she's 13. As she's growing up, you want to teach her this resilience, this toughness. How do you do that? 
you know, I tell her there are certain things that she has to be able to do, whether she likes it or not. I don't care if she cries. I don't care if she doesn't want to do it. She has to be able to get to a certain point, and then she doesn't have to do it anymore. What are you talking about? Skiing. Ice skating. So skiing is very challenging. It hurts. You fall. It's I like, thought you were going to say some, like, skill that, like, she needs for survival. And you're like, skiing. <laughs> like a recreational activity that's totally unneeded for people with, like, medium to high income. <laughs> oh, high income. Yeah, that's true. Uh, she, well, you know, it, I don't know that one really really struck as an example of something. Because it's a challenge? Because it's difficult? Or? Well, because a lot of kids, they try it. It's horrible. It hurts. You're not good at it. There's, I mean, she was definitely not good at it. And I was like, you just have to be good enough to get down the mountain. You just have to be good enough to ski down the mountain. And now she is. When they took me skiing for the first time, they, you know, they were kind of showing me everything, which I, I loved. I know. It was so cool. And maybe it was like the third or fourth time down. I took like the wrong path and went down, you know, the whatever, not double black diamond, but whatever, whatever one was not beginners, clearly like intermediate. And I crashed so hard. Pretty sure I got a mild concussion, like smacked yeah, my head. So dangerous. Yeah, so dangerous. That's why, like, this year I don't think I'm going to – maybe I might do it once or twice, but I'm not going to get into it because I feel like I know I'm going to get hurt and I do enough dangerous things in terms of, like, martial arts, jiu-jitsu, like, karate, weightlifting that I don't need that extra – level of risk in my I'm, life. I'm so sorry, but skiing is so much more dangerous than Way anything. more dangerous, I know. I know. Oh, I my agree. goodness. It's yeah. not like when you're going to, it's not like if you're going to injure, it's like when. Oh, yeah. my gosh. And the impact is so much greater. I mean, I boxed and people are like, oh, that's so dangerous. I'm like, have you ever ridden a bike before? Those are scary. So there's different levels of risk with every single thing that you do. So I'll tell you more about teaching my daughter. I'm trying to think of some really good examples of experiences that she had that wouldn't be saying too much about her. I do try to respect her privacy. Like, I don't post pictures unless she says it's okay. I don't talk about some of the personal things in her life unless she says it's okay. Does she but, usually let you or not let you? Or is it just sometimes, yeah, sometimes There's no. some things I want to say about her right now, but I won't because I <laughs> haven't asked for her permission. And she is a— Well, I'm saying most of the time, does she give you permission to have those conversations? Most of the time, no. No. Most of the time, no. How do you yeah. deal with that? Like, isn't that tough? Don't you want to annoy the crap out of her like our mom would do? It's yeah. So you beat them into submission to sag it? Yeah, so I like to embarrass her for sure. <laughs> but the thing, I'm trying to think of an example of situations where, oh my gosh, like here, I'll tell you a great example. Crossing the street. I don't know, like, if it's just my kids. It's not just my kids. Kids are, like, really attracted to crossing the street in a very irresponsible way. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like they're paying attention, paying attention. They get to the street, and all of a sudden, the sky becomes wildly exciting. And so, you know, over time, that becomes like a very dangerous proposition. It's like, you know, you're 10 years old. You need to know. She's 13 now. But, you know, you need to know how to cross the street safely. I can't let you out of the house until I know you can get across the street without being really irresponsible and risky. And so I think that, you know, she falls down, she trips, she gets into things. And so sometimes, you know, we sit there and I sit there and say, I don't like coddle her. I think I say, what could you have done to have helped avoided this situation? You know, why is it so important to look where you're going? What are you, what's happening here? I don't try to shield her from reality. I don't try to protect her from, you know, knowing what is out there. She had an experience at her school where a child, that's a good story. I don't know if it's appropriate. She had an experience at her school where a student sent threatening messages onto the group Snapchat. She's not allowed on Snapchat, but it didn't matter because people screenshotted it and sent it in the group text. So, you know, there's only so much you can do to avoid that. And so when it happened, it was a pretty violent threat. It was, I'm going to do like an OKC bombing on the school. It was really scary. You know, the school had a lot of interventions after that. 
But so, you know, what do I do to help her in a situation like that? I told her if she sees that child, run the other way. Take as many kids as you can and just run. And if somebody yells she's at you. She's going to see that child in school. That kid's out of the school. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. So that's like a situation when they're just done. Yeah. I, I think something like that where I say, you know, I drill them on things like, okay, so if you see someone with a gun in school and the teacher says, everybody stay where you are. Do you listen to your teacher? Answer, no. Like, that's how I address it. It's like, if your life is in danger, you A, pray. You know, like, that's the one thing that I think can help you mentally in a situation like that. And then secondly, run, get out as fast as you can and bring as many people as you can with you. And I think that that's like a little intense to talk about, but we do. I talk about what, you know, kinds of things can happen. You know, another adult she she knew through education got arrested for you know, the inappropriate stuff with children. We talked about that and how... Someone I, that as a teacher? A teacher. Oh, my God. And I said... Wait, and she knew the why teacher. she got in trouble? She knew what... It's a male teacher. Oh, male, oh okay. I was going to say, female teacher. That's, like, no, super no, no, shocking. No. It's like, a guy like, teacher. Yeah. So a guy teacher got in trouble for having inappropriate images of mm-hmm. kids, I'm assuming, which mm-hmm. is disgusting. And do the other kids know about this? Like, how do you... I guess it's impossible to no, show their kids. No, the guy got arrested. I mean, it was a whole big thing. I mean, she found out about it when the whole school did. But the point is, when things like that happen, I talk to her and I say, you know, what do you think? Let me tell you what actually happens in real life. You know, here's why people usually don't tell when things like that happen. Here's how you have to tell. I don't like this is what you have to do in these situations. And I say that just based on knowing how prevalent, you know, the point is that she's not unaware of these things. They've she's already not shielded. Been around like she knows her. about it and then you address it. Yeah. I mean, I like to say I did some addressing it before it happened, but she knows that it really happens in real life because she's familiar with these And so I was very specific to her to say, like, let me explain to you how this happens. It doesn't come off as violent a lot of the times. It comes off as very pleasant. And I have another theory. So if you'd like to go on to my bizarre thoughts. I love conspiracy bizarre thoughts. So uh, I covered the news. And when I did, you know, it's a felony to release the uh, names of a sexual assault victim. And so they were always what if shielded. They permission? Of course, but they have to do that. You can't release their names. They have to choose to come out. And so I always felt like the purpose behind that was wonderful because it makes sense that those people are then protected. But I actually think, as crazy as this sounds, that it actually, this is one of my crazy thoughts, that it actually helps to give perpetrators more ammunition because there's nobody out there talking about it. Like if that happened and you said it was, you know, if an uncle did it. It's not the whole point of the Me Too movement, though. It was like, okay, let's oust these people. Let's say, I'm, you know, I'm an actress, I'm an A-list actress, and this actually happened to me when I was 14 or something. I would say yes and no. The Me Too movement kind of went off the rails. Well, that was the idea of it. I mean, I don't know about, you know, the whole Me Too movement afterwards, but that was the idea behind it was like, let's go out and say something instead of us being anonymous victims that no one knows about. Right. The idea being that this is not something that should be, this doesn't have to be a point of shame, but it creates the concept that people would feel shame by the fact that you can't let anybody know who you are or what happened. So I think it does give perpetrators ammunition to say you can't tell anyone. It's not that different than having uh, headgear on your head and then like you hit harder and you're a bigger target and you think it's going to protect you and help you but it oh, doesn't that's right? so good you brought it around yeah I'm so glad I, you're here <laughs> and it's funny because in karate with sparring 
we kind of had the same thought process with shields on the face, mm-hmm. right? Like for many years when I was growing up, there was no shield. And sometimes you got punched and, you know, you would cry because they got hit in the nose. I didn't. And you did. I definitely cried. And because of that, like you were more careful with your partner. But then when you get shield masks on, whether it's the, the metal bar one or the clear plastic one, then you hit harder because you feel like you're not going to hurt them. And then their head snaps back, right? And then I know we've gone through these iterations of like, okay, obviously, yes, helmet. I don't think we have a choice with that in terms of like insurance. And probably good to have that. Any, you know, They're not professional fighters, right? But the shield mask is like, we think we're doing the right thing by having that on there, but sometimes it creates the opposite effect. I'm anti-mask in general in those situations, and partially because if there's no risk of you getting hit in the face, it's like, then you don't have that sense of defense. Like, there has to be a sense of risk in order to have that sense of reward. Otherwise, it's, you lose any need to protect. I mean, if the other person can't really hit you. Right, if you're covered like the Michelin man, and yeah, then you then, can smack each other and- Right, then you lose the idea of it being a battle. But if you have to use incredible self-control, well, then then you're really gaining something strong. That's a really good skill as opposed to, well, I couldn't hit you anyway because you had a piece of gla- a piece of plastic over your face. I think there's a big difference in those things. Okay, next question for you. Because okay. we already talked about this my- This is the first question for me. We talked about my daughter and I think some things that I wasn't planning on talking about today. So I want to kind of- I, I think any conversation with you is going to include things that you were not planning on talking about. It's pretty tough. long tirades that may get you canceled. I'm fine with that. <laughs> I will say, <laughs> I don't, I used to work in journalism, but I would like to very strongly say I do not trust the news media. And I can give you many examples of why not. Well, I read, um, what's his name's book? Ryan something, Ryan Holiday, his book about Trust Me, I'm Lying. Oh. That book told me everything I needed to know, I felt like. And, and he worked in the industry. And he, you know you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, the book? yeah. Right. I haven't read it, but I'm familiar. Yeah, it just says, like, here's how it works. It starts in, like, a blog, and then it goes to, like, a, yeah. a small website, and then it goes to a bigger news website, and then CNN picks it up. And it's just, like, all spun through rumor, and then once it's out, it's out. It doesn't matter if you retract it later. You can't change people's minds. You don't know what they see or hear. So, anyway, off topic. Okay, all right, so tell if me, you were to say that you were which percentage of your mom or your dad – that comes out in your personality, which one would you be? Like, it's got to add up to 100. I would say 70% mom, 30% dad. Is that, would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, but you sometimes get, like, grumpy like dad. That's true. That's why I said 30% grump. Yeah, that's, like, the one criteria that, I mean, like, the eagles stink, you know? <laughs> yeah, okay, so. so. <laughs> edit that out. I love the eagles. No, we love the eagles, and they're uh, hopefully going to win a Super Bowl. Hopefully this isn't me jinxing it. But. For our dad, if watching the Super Bowl, I mean, watching football with him is the worst experience. I, I love 99% of things with my dad. He's very enjoyable. Yeah, he's like the our best. dad is like very easy to sit down mm-hmm. and talk to. He'll remember everything you say, he'll ask you about it next time. Mm-hmm. He's super thoughtful and caring. But watching football with him is literally the worst experience. Every play that's negative, he'll say, oh, they're going to lose. This is terrible. They suck. They could be up 37 to nothing. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, oh, they don't get a first down? <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, here we go. And it's it's the worst. So, like, it's funny because that's the only thing I'm not willing to do with him. Like, when family invites yeah. me over, oh, we're watching the game with dad. Nah, no thanks. Like, I'll do anything else with him. Not that. <laughs> Next question. Yeah. What do you think I do about mom? You didn't tell me that. What's the 70% of mom? Or do you, you agree with that number? I really want to. Yeah. Yeah, I really do. Were you surprised I said that number? I was really surprised. You thought I was going to say more dad? Yeah. No, I think socially, which is a big part of my life, I feel like I'm mom. Yeah. Yeah, and that's probably And mom true. is the type, type of person that can talk to anyone. Yeah. And I feel like I kind of get that skill set from her. I'm not as good as her, not even close. Yeah, or me. Or you. Oh, next question. Name three things where I'm better than you. 
Ooh, okay. Good question. Writing, for sure. Boring. What else are you better push than Push-ups. You're definitely not better than me. I do push-ups okay, every single day. I'm still living off the win when you were 14. <laughs> uh, I literally do 50 push-ups every morning. So I don't think you're ever going to beat me on that because I'm so consistent. Well, unless you start doing them every single day and get to 100. I'm funnier. Just say it. Funnier, I would say. Definitely funnier. Okay, agreed. Uh, one other thing you're better than me at, definitely not driving. Oh, could just say it. I'll say fashion. Style. Oh, okay, next question. Okay, that's exactly what you wanted. No, that's good. Or Next question. Recording. You can listen to that back Why later. do you drive a teenage girl starter car <laughs> and then flex about it on your podcast? <laughs> well, I think the reason why I like doing that and talk about my, you know, crappy Chevy Cruze is that like, it just proves a point of like, spend your money where you want to spend your money. And I think people need like, see that and not feel pressured to buy things that they don't want to buy just because like, that's what society says they need to do. And like, that's why to me, it's a flex. Like one of my mentors, at least online, I've never met is like Alex Ramosi and uh -huh. everyone knows. Mm -hmm. And like, he talks about how he was making like a hundred grand a month and he was driving like a Prius with like a broken window. Yeah. So he talks about like, Hey, I was, you know, making all this money. And like the reason why I had this money in my bank, like that's the flex is like the money in the bank, not the car. So I think like, that's the reason for me, but like, I'll also spend a lot of money on things I really love. Like, Hopefully the Eagles make it to the Super Bowl. That'll be a $10,000 four-day trip. Like that'll be very, very expensive, right? Go to Brazil. Like that's going to be five to six grand trip. Like I'll probably spend 30 grand on like going away this year, like easily. And I think I do that, I do that like most years. Maybe not that much money, but a lot. Could you um, go away more? No, I could not go away more than I do now. In fact, I want to go away less. <laughs> but, but yeah, that's why I say that. It's like spend the money where you want to spend it, not on other things because you think that's what people want to see or hear. Eventually, I'll get a nicer car. But also how the car market is right now, oh, it's just yeah. like to me, it doesn't make just any sense. Just buy one. Okay, will you buy me tickets to a Madonna concert, please? Mm. I run out of money. If you beat me in a push-up competition, then I will buy you tickets to a Madonna concert. Oh, my God. Okay, deal. Okay. What do you think makes you a good catch? A good catch? Mm -hmm. Like, are we talking about a business relationship, a, a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife situation? Uh, this is what mom told me to ask you. What makes me a good catch? Just share it with the share it with your fans. <laughs> I'm sure somebody. Why nice... don't you tell me what you th what do you think makes me a good catch? Here's what I think. I think you're like a perfect guy. Okay. Like. Beautiful eyes, handsome, short king, driven, work hard. You're in good shape. You have a good profession. You drive a sh crappy car. I can't stand it. <laughs> you, I think you need a woman who kind of forces you to level up your game and stature. But your farts smell worse than anyone else on the whole planet. <laughs> so I made a profile for you on J-Date. Yeah, okay, nice. And that's what it says. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm glad everyone knows about that now. I think it's important. Yeah, so if you're... If well, anyone's... listen, it's not my fault. I looked it up. Gastrointestinal issues are... Oh, God. I have like a Jewish stomach, which is known to be like, first of all, everyone in our family has some sort of issue. You're getting less and less attractive. Okay, I'll stop it there. But you brought it up. You like wanted to really put that in there. Right? I got to get this in the podcast. Well, it's one of my best comments. And I actually told people when I said I was doing this podcast to try to prove that I'm better than my brother. And then they would go, oh, well, you already are. I go, oh, no, no, not that one. The other one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that cracked great. me up. That's great. What other questions? Do you have another question for me? My next question is when you like karate has been like a big 
pretty much like the majority of your career, but you also seem to like sales and things like that. And one of my big, like my journey was I had such a passion for another career before I got to karate. Is there any career that you could imagine doing as a nine to five that you're like, yeah, I could do that eight hours a day if I made enough money? I don't know if this is a nine to five job. It's, I mean, I'll take that back. It's definitely not a nine to five job, but another career I could do. At least in my head, this is maybe romanticized, but I love like nature photography and like hiking and being out. So if I could have like a National Geographic job where I can go to like, you know, somewhere in Africa and just take pictures of beautiful animals, I love that stuff. That's like my favorite. That's not a job. That's not a job. No. It's, it's, someone has that job. I hear podcasts of people talking about it. Or you know what I'd be good at? I'd be a good tour guide. I think I'd be good at like showing people the city. I love having pride in my city or showing, I mean, I could show any city I feel like, if, you know, as long as I got the information to study, but I think a, a tour guide would be really fun. I, I think I'd really like it. What do you think drives you ultimately? Like, you know, people always say, oh, I want to spend more time with family. I don't personally. <laughs> like that is the last thing I want to do. Let me say about myself. I like to do interesting things. I don't even care if they're fun or not. I like to be like, well, that I'm here for the show. I'm here for the comments. Like, what's going on here? And I like for things to be interesting. Yeah. Like, I went on a date once that was horrible, but I got to eat. And I mean, it was a truly bad date. But at that date, I got to eat Ringo Starr's leftover broccoli. <laughs> True story. And I was like, first of all, I'm really not a Beatles fan. I, I mean, they're wonderful, but I don't care for them. But what a great story. Yeah. I was like so happy that day. Like I had no fun at all. I couldn't wait to get home. I was like so miserable. But I was like, yes, that was so interesting because it was such a bizarre thing. And so many other examples where I, I like to be where the action is. I think that's what drew me into being a reporter. I just wanted to be there when the pier collapsed. I wanted to be there when the, you know, the plane crashed. I wanted to be there when there's a shooting. Like I wanted to see it with my own eyes and see what's happening, whether it's good or bad. I like to see the human condition. That really intrigues me and interests me. You like love humans and New York, like those like people stories. Yes. Human interest stories. Yeah, but that's a little dated. I don't have that book in my house. You do? Yeah. I've written those stories. I think they got it from me, actually. Oh, wasn't it my idea to do a podcast first? I don't think so. It was my idea. No, it was not. Okay. It was also my idea to do a push up contest for Madonna tickets. <laughs> You're gonna lose the push up contest. No I'm gonna practice. I'm not really you in don't push up shape. practice time. I'm gonna not so today. Do it at the end of this podcast. The, the, We're gonna turn the, the cameras. Oh, no, we're not. I can't. I'm in a dress. But listen, the point is, I don't think, oh, I'm doing this for my – I think when people say they're doing it for their kids, I think it's like a lazy answer. Like, yes, you do things for your kids. Yes, you do things with them. But they yeah, don't yeah. want you to not do your dreams and do the things you want to do because you have them. Like, they want you to do those things with your life. They want you to have this great life, just like yeah, you want that for them. That's a canned answer that you think people want to hear. Right. So my question for you is, like, I wonder this. Like, So I know what, for me, what are the things that, like – inspire me. And I do not know what I would do if I wasn't doing karate professionally. I mean, there's things I know I would love doing. I'd love to, hi, I'd love to be Candace DeLong's assistant on a true crime podcast. But like, I don't know for you, like, what would you be like? Like, man, this is cool that I got to do this with my life. Well, like you're talking about my motivation or an experience? Experience. I mean, I would love to be on Joe Rogan's podcast. That'd be like the coolest thing ever. Probably won't happen. And probably will not happen. That was my dad impression. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I hope it and happens. I'll do mom impression. You can do anything you want, honey. You're so smart. Thank you. You're the I best. That. I love you so much. It's uh, your sister. She's horrible. <laughs> There's some truth to that. Some truth. So in terms of like what motivates 
me, and I think it's like not necessarily a positive thing. It's not like, you know, A, I don't have kids, so that answer can't exist. Or like, you know, what other people will say is like, why do you teach martial arts? And they'll say like, oh, I want to help as many people. Okay, I gotcha. Listen, that's true. That's true to a point, of course. I don't. But like, okay, there's obviously more towards it, right? So I used to coach before the pandemic nutrition, like online, Mm -hmm. nutrition and fitness coaching. And I'd always ask people like, why do you want to lose weight, right? Most times that's what people want to do. Some people want to put on muscle, but let's just say with lose weight. And they always give you the canned answer first, right? They'll say, oh, I want to be healthier. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. And that's like the first level of answer. People every single time say, I want to be healthier. I want to move around better. Okay, cool. Now, if I stop there and then I don't ask any more questions, then that's it. Like, that's their answer. But I always ask more. So I'll say like, okay, got it. So you want to feel better. Like, why is it important for you to feel better? Uh, I want to feel better because like right now, like I don't feel good when I look in the mirror. Okay, got it. Well, why don't you feel good when you look in the mirror? Because I just see that like I've gained so much weight since high school. Okay, great. So why is it important for you to feel better when you look in the mirror so that you don't feel maybe shame that you don't look the same as you did in high school? Well, because I'm going on a vacation with my family and some friends and my friend Lisa lost a bunch of weight and I don't want to be embarrassed at her next to the beach because she looks so much better than me. I used to look better than her. Okay, like, so where's where you your find answer? The real Obviously, you don't look better than Lisa at the beach. So, <laughs> what is, like, what would you be like? Oh my God, this is so cool that this is my life. Like, I, I, I don't see. I, what... I don't know if I have an answer for that. I do know that I'm driven by wanting to be like looked up to as like a leader and like wanting more status. So, like right now, like I feel like I don't have maybe the status that I want, and that's part of the reason why I do the podcast is like improve my brand and my recognition online and my digital imprint. You're going to want to get rid of the ass sign behind your head for that. <laughs> uh, maybe that's some of the... Uh, and the wet sign. <laughs> I don't know. First of all, by the time this goes out, maybe that would not be in there by how he edits it. So this might not make any sense. For anyone that's behind me, this is like, I don't know why this is here, but it's some carpet that says wet grass on it. Part of the bank that sponsors this room. But yeah, I think for me, it's like, I think it's probably more eco-driven. Like, I want to be looked up to. I want people to be like, oh, like Matt, he has such great ideas. I want to I want to be able to get help from him. I want to watch his videos. I want to be, I'm more like at this point in my life, I think, I think in my early 20s, I was like more like money-driven. Like I wanted, when I say money-driven, like, you know, I want to be able to make money and like have like a nice house and do whatever. But now I'm like a little bit more like status-driven. Like I care more about the status and probably having a nicer car make me have that, right? But for me right now, like, okay, I just really want to be able to look up, be like looked up to. And I don't want to later be like, oh, I regret not doing that podcast or not going to Brazil or not doing the things that I want to do because, oh, I should be at my martial arts school more. Oh, I should be doing this. Oh, I should be doing that. Okay, great. But life is so short. Like, I have a lot of regrets. Yeah. Already this podcast. <laughs> you regret doing this podcast? You regret wearing that dress. I love this dress. I just wanted to say that as a job. I have the best clothes. I wish you yeah. guys could see my was shoes. Was that the answer you expected or not? It was not what I expected. I thought it was going to be more financial driven. Well, yeah. I mean, finance is part of that. Like finance opens doors in order for you to increase your status. Unless you're, you know, yeah, I'd say most of the time that's the case. Am I financially driven? Yes. But I also feel like a lot of times status, it can go reverse. Status can give you opportunity to make more money. Yeah, I think that too. 
So like now I'm almost like taking a step back of worrying about, okay, how much money can I make this year or make this month? And then, okay, why don't I just improve my status? And then I'll be in a much better position to make five times that or 10 times that later. Sounds like you gave up. <laughs> no, I definitely didn't give up. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a smarter, better long-term strategy. What Alex Ramosi would say is like, the wider you build the runway, the larger the plane can go down it. Okay, right? I have a question. Yeah. How valuable do you think I am to the martial arts organization? <laughs> uh, good question. So I think one of the things that you're really good at is branding and like design like your martial arts school i think compared to some of the other ones including mine is like definitely not as pretty as yours and you do a lot of innovative things like one of the things you did when you first came on board with us is you changed our logo and like our logo had been around for 20 something years and (laughs) it's been around forever right and it's like it's so important for us for our brand recognition you're like we need to change it we need to optimize it and of course the people in charge including you know our brother was like okay we're not doing that it's been around too long it doesn't make any sense we're like oh well look at nike look at coca-cola like all these big companies have modernized their logo over time there's many iterations of their logo so i think kind of like bringing us into the modern era is like i think one of the your biggest strengths because a, like you obviously care about design. Like you like having nice clothes. You like having a really nice car, right? You don't travel 10% of what I do, right? But you wear 90% of things that are way nicer than my clothes or my car, right? So I think we kind of flip-flop and like what we enjoy. So I think that is the, probably the biggest thing. So I guess my question for you on that topic is like, what do you think the martial arts industry is missing in terms of updating and getting to the 21st century in terms of like online presence or maybe the design of the schools or the smells or the looks? Like, what do you think we need to be doing better? Well, I'll tell you some of the things that I've put into place uh, that I think should be a little bit more standardized in the karate schools. So I do think that looks are very important. I remember hearing before that in schools that are dilapidated and run down, students perform worse. And it's very consistent across the board. It's something that they were very surprised to see. They thought it would that socioeconomics, the teachers, the quality of the education would rank as more important. But it turned out that the environment that they were learning in had such a strong effect on their education. I'm not saying these other things don't, but it was a surprisingly relevant. So that the same kids same teachers in a different environment did worse when they were in a crappy school. And it creates this mentality of they don't care about this place. I don't care about this place. They don't care about me. And it's a subtle thing, but you will find it as consistent everywhere. And so when you go to a really nice place, you tend to hold yourself differently, whether or not you intend to, it's just a different expectation of performance. And so I want when people to come to the karate school, my goal is for them to say, wow, I can't believe I can afford this. That's what I want people's impression to be. And to have it come off as like, oh, this is the nice one. This is the nice karate school. This is the one where I can go. So I'm very proud to have students at my karate school that really range in backgrounds and um, socioeconomic. So, I mean, truly multimillionaires versus people who are literally on public assistance. So really a wide range of, of students. And so that's something I'm, I really like very much value. And so, for example, the bathrooms are painted the exact same color as the bathrooms at the Ritz. 
You know, you can just go to Home Depot or whatever store and get that same paint. And I try to do something every single month that updates the look. And when I see things that like catches their eye or intrigues them, I say, okay, how can I update that or upgrade that? The only thing that I'm limited by only is very minor is finances. I'm broke right now. But because of opening the two other karate schools is a big financial outlay for me and one that I, didn't, I don't think I ever did the math on. And so visually being in a place where you're expected to be great is fantastic. So up on the walls, I have Muhammad Ali's autograph. I have Sylvester Stallone's autograph. I have a thing in tribute to Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight champion, and a lot of other uh, just things that are, are meant to really prop up the experience. And so if you look at what things look up to, they look at superheroes on TV, the Marvel. I mean, how popular those are. Well, we use those same weapons. We do those same moves, but I don't think people quite make the connection that they can actually do those things that they think are cool in the movies in real life in a karate studio. So for me, it's a, a matter of grabbing what already has their attention and turning it into something that can prop up their ability and value. I think in the martial arts world, something that we often do is find the cheapest thing and then like kicking and screaming go up one little level up from that. And I think that you'll find that across the board. Like there's very few people I think in martial arts who are looking for the more expensive, highest end design of a martial arts school. You don't, I, I don't see a lot of that quality being part of the culture. So well, you do see that in the fitness industry. Yes. You'll see that at Barry's. You'll see that at Orange Theory. I've actually never been in Orange Theory. I, mean, I have. Yeah, they have like nice. DJs and good lighting yeah, and all yeah. that. And I've gotten that from people saying, you know, more of my friends would come here if you had good lighting and a DJ. So I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> um, but I do. But I also want it to be an environment where the people who aren't comfortable in that gym environment, where it is that scene, are comfortable in the martial arts school. And I don't think that I've actually found, I don't think I've financially found the right formula to, to hit all those needs. But I personally, I don't like going to the gym. I know you do. I don't like it. I don't like going to on treadmills. You know, there's a lot of fitness things that don't appeal to people. I don't like going to yoga classes. And martial arts, I think, fits a lot of people. I think there's so many people who could do martial arts who aren't because of the way it's marketed. It's not marketed in a way that they can actually see themselves doing it. And so one of the... So tell me how they market it and that you think is wrong. Kind of a nerdy kids activity, not like a world-class sport, like not something for women particularly. Some people don't like wearing the uniforms. I was about kind to bring of... that up. I know one of the biggest issues that we have that you brought when you first came and you're like, I don't want to wear this uniform. This uniform doesn't fit me right. It's boxy. It's, it's horrible. terrible material. It doesn't fit women. Yeah, and it's like, you know, you go to buy uniforms from Century or Asia World or anywhere, any supplier, that's designed for men. Yeah, it's they're just not pink. designed for women. They're men's uniforms in the color pink. That's yeah, how they do it. Yeah, usually it's like a horrible shade of pink. Mm -hmm. And I know at one point you were trying to make women's mm -hmm. uniforms. Yeah. I don't know whatever happened to that. Maybe I fell through or maybe it's something later. Yeah, no, I got some things made. I got some samples made. And to be honest with you, none of the samples were what I wanted. In the same vein as doing the bare minimum cost to try to get something out of it, I didn't have the resources to really get to the kinds of people who can really make something special for martial right, arts. Like a Lululemon of martial arts, right? Bingo. And, and the problem is our industry is so much smaller. Like the addressable market is so much tinier. You could have said, you would have said the same thing about yoga before yoga pants. I mean, there was a time before yoga pants. That's right. And right now we have yoga pants that we wear in our karate school because women cannot wear those. I mean, especially bigger women 
those pants are just totally, they don't like going to the gym and they don't want to wear our uniforms. But I bet if they were wearing something comfortable, they would like this stuff. It's fun. It's cool. Like being able to punch and feel your power, being able to, you know, know a new scale, being able to throw someone over. It's fun. It's There's some really cool things about it. I don't think we embrace enough of the cool because we still have that, the part of it that I struggle with. That I, that I try to overcome is there's always going to be a place at the karate school, in my opinion, for like that nerdy kid who loves karate and always will. And that came out of the 90s. And that's that stereotypical karate school. And what I'm trying to do is make it that kid, almost like Cobra Kai, actually all the cool kids can come now. Cobra Kai, in my opinion of the show, actually brought together a way of making it on like, oh, an L.A. boutique karate school. I love that idea. So not all of it totally, because I think some of it's a little that, that that had, a you know, the bullying. It's not fully together. But I love that idea of having a place where everybody can train at their own space and feel like they're part of like a world class, wildly popular, competitive sport environment. And that no matter what level they're at, they can still get a lot out of it. And I, I do that all the time to parents. Is And it's super funny when I do it. I'll see two kids in class and I'll see um, one parent who's just looking at their kid like this, like, oh, my God, I'm so embarrassed. And then another parent who's doing the same thing like this. And they're literally looking at each other's kids, wishing that their kid was more like the other one. So it's really funny. So one of them, it's like a really talented kid, really quiet, just stands in a spot and does all the moves. Really, really, really great, but has just like no motivation to do it. The other kid is like not listening, da -da -da -da, acting like, like wild and all this stuff and has that issue, but is like raising their hand and really wanting to get really involved. Yeah. So one of my favorite things about martial arts is that those two kids are both getting something completely different from the same class. And I love showing that to parents and showing them, like, really, it doesn't matter what your deal is. Like, really, we have a way of – it's really such a magical thing that very few people truly capture in explaining it, even on this podcast, that there's a really interesting dynamic in martial arts classes where you could have a Division One level athlete and a really unathletic kid both doing their absolute best in the same karate class, getting exactly what they need out of it. And with no alteration in the class, it's just that that environment builds them up where they are, either for confidence or whatever skill that they need. So those are nice words, but how do you actually do that? First, I blog about it. <laughs> uh, I tell the parents, I say, look, what's happening? Part of it is I don't know. I think it's the system that we teach and the way we teach it and what we teach. I think it's our instructors and the way that they respond to that kid exactly for who they are. I, you know what it is? This is how we do it. We don't teach our material to the kids. We teach the kids and then we put in our material into who they are. We're not looking to get every, like, like the way schools are. You have to have a certain learning style and a certain ability. And then you have to soak in whatever the teacher's teaching, however they're teaching you it. You just got to fit in this mold. Bingo. We do it. We have the opposite effect where we look and say, Oh, today we're going to teach this in class because that kid will love it. Today we're going to do lines instead of instead partner of partners yeah. because I need to talk to that kid to help his confidence to work with a partner. And we're and I know that we're all doing it because I see it and I know that it's I mean some of us are better than others, but it's almost like we kind of draw a circle around each kid in every class so they're able to have a social experience with their peers and work on what they need to work on. And when I get that feedback from parents, I know it happens. Like it's 
bonkers. It's like, oh, now he's doing chores and he's going to school and he's doing this and he's doing that. Oh, this kid's now eating correctly. Like all these little things. This kid has ADD and now he's paying attention and da -da -da. he's able to find a place. And the thing that I think makes it special, so I'll like, this is kind of just a yay karate rant, but what makes it special is that, you know, when there's a kid who maybe doesn't feel like they fit in in certain places or they're not, you know, maybe they're not good at sports or they're not excelling in whatever they're doing. Karate is like a safe place for them to practice being better at those things. And so they get, without it being therapy, it's like that sweet spot between the sport and therapy. And that's what karate fits into. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way. Does that make sense to you? Well, I think they say like yoga or martial arts is like a moving meditation. Totally different from yoga. Yeah, we'll say yoga or martial arts. I've heard it referred yes. to in both, right? So, and obviously, meditation is for mental health or you know, kind of like yeah. a therapy. Me I don't Therapeutic. Wanna, I really don't like yoga, but I don't want to put it down. It is a very good activity. There's I nothing like yoga wrong. Sometimes I can do tree pose. I can do it once in hot yoga once in a while. But the idea being that yoga, though, it's the instructor, and then everybody just does whatever they can, right? And they everybody gets this something out of it. Right. In martial art, and, but I've never been to a yoga class where the teacher looked at me and was like, "This is what you need today." I'm going to teach this for you. Well, you probably didn't go consistent enough for them to even know who you well, are. I would never. But the idea <laughs> being that is an intentional part of what we do. We don't say, hey, you're not good at football. You didn't make the team. We say, oh, you're good at that one thing. Let's focus on what you are good at until those other things fall into place. And then as those things come up, the thing that they're not good at helps. So like I talk to parents and they say, you know, when my kid started, he said he just wasn't good at anything. Well, now he's on the soccer team. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> we did our job. We're not doing it for the sake of doing karate. Like our ultimate goal just really changes with each person in the room. So I think that that is a great goal. It's a great aspiration for the martial arts industry to be able to promote it in that way and to be able to promote it as like, yeah, this is what you see on TV in all of these shows that everybody aspires to and admires, like this is it. This is what it is. Um, I think one of the downsides is that it's not a school or college sport. I yeah. think it's that's one of the things that we struggle with. One thing I learned about myself recently, if you want to just psychoanalyze me a little bit, one of the things I really everyone learned, listening has been doing that this whole time. I wonder what texting they learned. their friends. You won't believe what she just. I said. I wonder what they learned. But one of the things that I learned about myself recently is that I like to be part of something. So, like, if I wasn't part of a whole, you know, action karate conglomeration, I would not want to open a karate school. When I worked in at a church, it wasn't like a small church, which is like what most people would think of as it. It was like a big one. And that's what really did it for me. I like to be part of something bigger. And so when I look at, like, what I want to do in my life and, like, aspirations, like, entrepreneurial and things that I think I can do, well, I do wonder, like, I recently figured out that I think that being part of this organization gives me the confidence to say these things because it's not just, like, one person doing it. It's a whole system that helps to feed itself. It helps to produce good instructors and good environments. And when it happens over and over again, I'm like, oh my God, this is a real thing. When I hear other people who I maybe don't even think are good instructors, and if you want, I will start listing those. That, But I hear their students say the same thing my students say. So it's not something that I'm specifically doing. It just works, is right. what I would say. Right. And 
the other thing that I think is important to mention for modernizing martial arts and making it more popular, and one thing that I think we're just terrible at as an industry, do you know what I'm going to say? You're looking at me like you know. I just didn't ask you that question. I know, but I want to add, off, add okay. on to that. This is my podcast, though. <laughs> is I think we're really bad at storytelling. We like, uh, have classes. Yeah, we I'm teach, fixing that. And I think we make such a tremendous impact on our youth and our communities and on people's lives. And we're just terrible at showing people that. Yeah, there you go. Our video and, quality and audio quality is also God, trash. All terrible. Yes. Like there's some schools do it better than others, of course. But I would say 99% of it is just garbage. It's someone's iPhone that's like shaky. You can't hear anything. Mm -hmm. The audio is bad. And you watch like content from Barry's or whatever big fitness company there is, and it's all like high quality video. They have a production team, and they invest in that, and then it comes back, and like that's their marketing costs, right? Yeah, and popularity. Yeah, and popularity. And it's like not something you'll see a direct ROI on. So here's what happens, and this is how I used to think, so I, I get it. It's like, okay, I film the video, I put it on Facebook, Nothing happened. Maybe I'll try it again. Mm -hmm. they, I hate they, Facebook. They, yeah, they take another video, put it on Facebook or Instagram. I post it a couple times this month, or uh, maybe every day for a month, whatever, and nothing happens. And they're like, oh, well, the ROI, the, the return on investment in terms of my time or money or energy and effort is not worth it. And, it, and that's it, right? But people don't realize there's a huge lag in the return of effort. Like, yeah. I could do this podcast and do it for two or three years, get nothing out of it. Okay, but I'd be like, okay and willing to do that because I know eventually it's going to catch up and I'll be really good at it, you you'll, know? You'll find out you probably just should have gotten a nicer car. <laughs> yeah, I'll find out I should have gotten a nicer car earlier. That would improve my status way more than a podcast. Uh -huh. Yeah, and you have to be – we have to be better at telling our students' achievements. So if someone comes to us and they say like, oh, Johnny did so well at doing blah, 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 like at school, like instead of saying, oh, great, thanks. I'm so happy to hear that. Like, let's talk the students' journey. Let's talk about what they, where they were when they first started, where they are now, how that's impacted their life. Like, write about it. Get a good high-quality video. Get someone in there who has good video and audio equipment, knows how to make a video, and make a video about that family. Like, make it a personal story, a, a human interest story that people can connect to, not just like a sentence. You know, they'll, you know you'll buy a website from a company, and they'll be like, okay, send me your testimonials. And it said, like, you know, uh, Derek from Michigan yeah. says, I love how they teach discipline here. And you see like a face and a name like this and, and, and that's it, right? But the stories are what motivates people, right? Yeah. Like the story behind you wanting uh, to learn boxing might motivate someone, right? The story behind this podcast, story, th that's what motivates people. And I think if we're better, better at storytelling, it's not going to be, we're not going to see immediate results, but next five or 10 years or 15 years, that's how we transform the industry. Why is our older brother always mad at me? <laughs> I think that therapy session, you're going to have to touch, touch with him personally. What do you think my reputation is in the organization? <laughs> uh, oh, good. Okay, we got hot topics. All right, anyone who's listening to this who's in our organization is going to be like, damn, this is exciting. And why are they wrong? <laughs> well, I think you and I share something in common where we both like to go against the grain at certain times and like say, like, hey, that's not how I want to do it. And then we get very stubborn and then of course if someone else feels stubborn. another yeah okay and then someone else feels a certain way and they get stubborn and we'll butt heads so i think a lot of times what we do is like really good and so a lot of times we do things we do may work to our detriment and hopefully over time we get better at it but it's like no different than i think like a mad artist like you're kanye right kanye is a genius but he's yes, also a psycho I like kanye. right 
So screw you, Rolling Gun, yeah. I look at the no, camera I, every time I say something <laughs> to get canceled. <laughs> You're trying to go the Andrew Tate method, just say the craziest thing and mm, not quite. Out. I'm not gonna get myself not arrested. <laughs> not yet. But yeah, I think I think that's why. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. If you are a martial arts school and you're like, hey, you want to be part of something bigger, part of be be part of a bigger organization, and want to be able to grow, reach out to me. Or if you are a martial arts school and outside one of our territories, and you want to be able to learn systems to grow your school organically without ads, you can also reach out to me personally, two totally separate things. You know, we have our martial arts franchise and then we have the consulting side, which is two totally, totally separate things. Of course, you can't be anywhere near um, our region. Uh, So thank you for listening. My name is Matthew Brenner and have a great night. Bye guys.